electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm Brian Sullivan, and tonight, a sit-down with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. like you have not seen before. Well, I'm going to give everybody a rich uncle, which is Uncle Sam. The Democratic challenger to President Biden laying out his economic vision for the nation and much more. Hurricane Idalia wreaking havoc across North Florida and parts of Georgia. We have got breaking developments on the human and economic toll. Tesla suddenly feeling the heat from federal prosecutors. You may not believe why. A hot take just in from OPEC on the global energy debate and investors will want to listen up. Plus, fire one up for cannabis stocks. An out of the blue recommendation from health officials sending them soaring. We've got all those stories and more across the hour. So belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. Welcome, everybody. As always, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. All right, we're going to get to that interview in a moment. But first up, an unexpected late summer rally for your money. The S&P 500 now in a solid four-day win streak. The Nasdaq and Dow Jones also closing the session higher. Now, they're all still down for the month, but not by much. And here is a sully side up. Over the past six months, the S&P 500 has notched gains of over 13% and up 17.5% on the year. The NASDAQ 100 up a massive 41% this year. Now, some of this could change tomorrow. We get more inflation data as well as the monthly jobs number on Friday. The ADP private payroll report today showing good but not great job gains. Keep in mind, though, that report and the government's official number often vary and often vary widely. The question now is we head to Labor Day. How much can the surprise 2023 pop for your money continue? Let's talk about that, the economy, data, whatever else we decide to talk about and bring in tonight's panel. That is EY Chief Economist Gregory Daco and Stonex Chief Market Strategist Catherine Rooney-Vera. Catherine, first to you, not just the last four days. Who cares about four days, right? But, I mean, how surprised are you at how strong this year has been for stocks? It's been phenomenally strong, and I think that has a lot to do with the longevity of liquidity that a lot of us underestimated going into this year. How long that lasts is the question I think that is easier to answer. I think that savings rates are are falling. You know, we have that injection of liquidity from the COVID pandemic stimuli running out, and you see the effect of higher interest rates coming to the fore with credit tightening across the board from bank lending to credit cards to car loans. So all of that, I think, will come to the fore going into next year. But in the meantime, you're right. Hey, inflation is trending lower. The markets are glad about that. They're applauding the Fed's ability to um, or seeming ability to bring that to fruition. And the fact is is that 
equities are increasingly allocated to when inflation is low and stable. And that's what we're seeing happening right now. Yeah, Greg, listen, we've got inflation data tomorrow. We got the jobs data on Friday. But to Catherine's point, we've got some credit data, which is not looking good. I mean, constriction of credit. And by the way, if you can get credit, it costs a lot. What is top of mind for you and your team at EY? What are you watching the most closely for the economy right now? Well, I think what we're really paying close attention to is how consumers are evolving in terms of their spending pattern. Uh, We've seen that there's been a slowdown in consumer spending activity, but still resilience. There's no retrenchment of any sort, the retrenchment that was once feared in terms of a U.S. recession. We're seeing people being a little bit more cautious with their outlays. Some of the headwinds that Catherine mentioned in terms of still elevated prices, elevated interest rates, tightening credit conditions, soon the resumption of student loan payments, Mm. um, as well as some other headwinds in the form uh, of these tightening credit conditions are weighing on consumers' ability and willingness to spend. So it's not the traditional old recession playbook of a retrenchment in spending that we're observing, but some cooler momentum. The key question is, how sustainable that moderate momentum is going to be as we move into 2024 and as we see some further weakening in labor market well, dynamics. Greg, Greg I'm going to put it back to you and get you to answer your own question about how sustainable that is because you referenced student loan payments. Now, there's a lot. We hear a lot of big numbers. I guess I'll give the good news, which is that about a quarter of borrowers will owe less than $100 a month. The median payment is going to be 222. We hear about the average being higher because there's a few people that owe like $400,000. They skew the average. The median is about $222. Have you done any analysis on how much that resumption of student loan debt is going to do to the economy? Because, you know, you read the horror stories in the newspaper, but what about the macro impact? Well, from a macro perspective, it's likely to impose a drag around 0.3 percentage points, 0.4 percentage points um, as that resumption of payments restarts. Um, The key question, though, is how it affects families across the income spectrum, because $100 for one person may not be the same as $100 for another person. And as Catherine highlighted, we don't just have the resumption of these payments. We also have credit burdens on credit cards, on auto loans that are also rising because of elevated purchases during the post-pandemic era, as well as the fact that the interest rate cost is now very high, the highest that we've seen in multiple decades. Combine the two, and that's going to be an additional headwind for consumers. Yeah, Catherine, do you have a concept of what this, what this could or might do to the economy? Well, in terms of investing positioning, I think we should be positioned for a swooning of the of the economy, not because of the repayment of student loans. I think that's a drop in the bucket. But I think um, I think uh, the long and variable lag of five hundred twenty five, maybe five fifty basis points and hikes will take a toll on on credit. And and I think that uh, that that's going to impact consumer behavior next year. So we should expect a slowing of the economy. So I'm recommending our investors at Stonex uh, position for that swooning of the economy and then the ensuing rebound. So so I'm looking at um, short duration tips, for example, as a hedge against the potential resurgence of inflation, gold, commercial paper, that's on the defensive side. And then on the cyclical side, energy looks cheap, financials and materials as well. I I did not have Treasury inflation protected security tips 
in the office pool. So I lose tonight. But Catherine Rooney Vera out with the tips, tips, not chips, the very fine program with John and Ponch from the 70s and 80s. Greg, thank you very much. Appreciate it as well. Both of you have a good night. Thank you. All right. Well, we just did the macro market. So here's a look under the market hood. The big winner of the day, Insulet. That is a Massachusetts-based medical device company. The CEO buying a bunch of stock, and that stock rose 6%. At the other end of the spectrum was HP's 6% drop. Some disappointing numbers there. All right. You won't be disappointed if you stick around. Coming up, part one of our big interview with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Now, listen, he generates a lot of, let's say, passion on many sides. We sat down for a wide-ranging interview. You'll hear it in a few moments. Plus, how Mark Benioff and Salesforce are silencing any doubters that may be left. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. Time now for tomorrow's news tonight. And first up, Mark Benioff and Salesforce proving their naysayers wrong yet again. Software giant vaulting over expectations in their fiscal second quarter and boosting their full year guidance. They've been investing big into, yeah, you guessed it, AI. CEO Mark Benioff writing in a statement that Salesforce, quote, is leading our customers in the new AI era. Shares of Salesforce up nicely, 5.5% after hours on that news. Salesforce not the only company with rosy results tonight. Okta is seeing spending on IT finally beginning to stabilize. Okta is an identity management company software that is easily topping expectations for their latest quarterly results. Investors also cheering Okta's better than expected outlook. That stock up more than 9%. Not bad for Okta. All right, that's going to be my wordle starting word tomorrow, plus one. All right, finally, the feds are taking a closer look at Tesla. The DOJ and the SEC are investigating the EV maker over a secret glass house project. Who for, you may ask? One Elon Musk. According to the Wall Street Journal, prosecutors want information about the use of company funds for this house and other personal benefits paid to Musk. Plans called for a glass home structure built in the Austin, Texas area. Of course, hard to, you know, keep secrets in a glass house. We have reached out to Tesla for comment on the investigation, but have not yet heard a response. All right, thankfully, Hurricane Idalia is a hurricane no more. The National Hurricane Center has announced it is weakened into a tropical storm as it crosses into Georgia and South Carolina. But the pain is not over by any means. Nearly half a million homes and companies are without power, and officials estimate this storm could be another multi-billion dollar event for insurers and reinsurers. So homeowners and insurers, are they prepared to handle the bill? Contessa Brewer has more on that. Contessa. Brian, it's really still too early to have an accurate handle on the damage that Idalia delivered, especially since the storm is still turning across the land. But the big picture here, the insurance industry is prepared for a storm of this magnitude with more than a trillion dollars in surplus for property and casualty insurers. But natural disasters are increasingly expensive. Home construction materials have climbed roughly 40% since the start of the pandemic. Last year was the eighth year in a row that the U.S. had at least 
10 catastrophes that each caused more than a billion dollars in losses. And insurers generally last year paid out more in claims and for expenses than they took in in premiums. That's unsustainable. If you look at Florida in particular, hard hit by hurricanes, laid low by litigation and floundering in fraud, many insurers have folded or just fled. They could not make the numbers work. The state insurer of last resort, Citizens, saw a boom in customers because they probably couldn't get policies anywhere else or couldn't afford them. Reinsurance costs have skyrocketed. That's insurance for insurers. So they either pass along those costs the insurers do or they do without their own insurance, as 12% of homeowners in the U.S. have opted to do, forego property insurance, according to a survey by Munich Re and the Insurance Information Institute. Look, it's not just Florida. Other states, notably California, are seeing insurers exit. Property owners across the nation are seeing their premiums go up for homes and businesses and autos. If you haven't noticed that yet in your insurance bill, you will. And yes, we are seeing more frequent, more severe natural disasters. Not just hurricanes and wildfires, but hail and winter storms. Thunderstorms in the U.S. have caused 70% of the insured losses globally in the first half of the year. And where and what we build and then rebuild also factors into why, Brian, these catastrophes are increasingly costly. Contessa Brewer, thank you very much. All right, still ahead in Last Call, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., like you've never heard him before, we dig into his economic vision for America and a whole lot more that maybe aren't the usual suspect questions that he gets. That is next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Time now for our extended sit-down with Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Obviously a lot to cover. But we did this interview like we do all interviews, thinking about you, our CNBC audience. So we stayed away from some of the questions Kennedy seems to get all the time. And we began by asking him to finish this sentence. The American economy right now is what? In trouble. Why? A lot of the economic data is good. Consumer spending is good. Yeah, I'm over $33 trillion in debt. Um, and uh, and you, we have two presidential candidates who are saying they brought prosperity to this country, but you've got 57% of the American people who cannot put their hands on $1,000 if they have an emergency. And for those people, the engine light goes on in their car, and it's like the apocalypse happened. It's the end of the world for them. Um, we have now kids can't afford houses. Uh, the housing prices have gone from $215,000 two years ago to $400,000 today. You know, I have seven kids who are in the range 20 to 35, and almost none of their friends are buying houses. That was part of the, the American dream, that if you worked hard, you paid, played by the rules, you could afford a house, you could take a summer vacation, you could put money, you could raise a family. 
put money aside for retirement and and that was with one job and that's yeah. not happening well, now anymore. it's about i think it's about i think you tweeted about this about half the country the median income is below is five thousand dollars less than the cost of living right so, so now, you basically have to have two jobs you have to have two jobs and you and that but how do we do how do we, and you said your economic plan is going to fix that how do we fix that because this seems structural over structural. years or decades even. yeah and well, number one, we have to unravel the warfare business, the warfare machine. That is bankrupting our country. That, and you know, Paul Kennedy, who's a Yale historian, did a, uh, uh, has done this extraordinary history on the decline of empires. And, and every empire in the last 500 years, its death now was overextending its military abroad. We've spent $8 trillion on wars over the past 20 years, since 2002, that have gotten us nothing, that have made it less safe to be an American, less our country less safe. The Chinese spent $8 trillion during that same period while we were bombing bridges, ports, roads, schools, universities, hospitals. They were building them, and they're now the principal creditor almost every nation in Latin America and every country, virtually every country in Africa. So how would cutting the defense budget help the middle class? Well, in a number of different ways. I mean, first of all, we're going to lower our deficits. We're going to, we, we can bring a lot of that money home. I mean, if we hadn't spent that $8 trillion, Brian, we could extend the life of uh, solvency for Social Security loan for, for 30 years. We could pay for university educations for every child in America. We could pay off the credit debt, car debt in our country um, for individuals. Uh, we could. Uh, so, so take the DOD spending cuts. This is primary to your economic plan. Transfer that money into other things. Yeah, but I mean, that's not the only thing I want to do. I have a number of direct programs for that, that are common sense programs. That will begin restoring the middle class in this country in dramatic ways. Okay, what, what's another one? Well, one of them is to create, you know, the, one of the big problems, one of the reasons that the price of housing has gone up and nobody can get a house anymore. People make an offer on a house and then somebody comes in with a cash offer. Of, uh, a lot of these are big institutions, by the they're way. They're big institutions. Wall they're, Street firms. Vanguard State Street. Buying up hundreds of thousands uh, of homes. Uh, right. Their, their objective now, they own 88% of the S&P 500. Now they're targeting single-family homes. They're competing with our kids, and they have these big bank books. So they're, the cost of money and mortgages to them is minuscule, and our kids now have to compete with them. And, you know, Thomas Jefferson said American democracy has to be based on independent freehold ownership of independent freeholds by tens of thousands of, of American citizens, each with a stake in our system of government. We're now moving back to a feudal system. Yeah, where we have how, well, what do we do about it, Mr. Okay, Kennedy? Well, do, do we, do we make you, it illegal for no. insert big Wall Street bank name well, here to buy you, up mass amounts of property? You change the tax code to make it um, more difficult for large corporations to accumulate thousands of houses. But here, here's a, a direct program. If you have a rich uncle um, you, who will co-sign your mortgage, you can get a much lower rate because the bank is basing it on his, yeah. you know, the, his credit rating rather than yours. So I'm going to give everybody a rich uncle, which is Uncle Sam, who will guarantee mortgages at, uh, for first-time single-family home buyers at 3% interest. 
that will reduce the average price of mortgage by $1,000 a month. I will finance that not by increasing our debt, which I'm not going to do, but rather by selling tax-free 3% bonds to finance it. That will allow, you know, the, the, we have- I'm, I'm hearing shades of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in my head, yeah. though. This is where, and they run into their own problems. We've covered well, them. I, yeah. How would your plan be different than what currently exists? Well, we have now surpluses in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Oh, and that would be, you know, that we, I could tie those, those institutions into this program. But we need this program. We had, you know, we had 50 years of prosperity in this country after World War II. Economists and social scientists call it the great prosperity. Would you raise taxes on people making under 400000 a year? No, I would not. I'm not going to raise taxes. I, I'm not going to raise taxes. I don't think that that's the right thing to do right now. I think we really need to stimulate our economy. Um, another thing that I'm going to do is to create um, I, is, is, and this is a, a program that we announced this week, and it's a program that my uncle, uh, Ted Kennedy, John McCain, originally advanced in 2007, and then it was advanced by a number of the civil rights leaders, including Andrew Young and a number of others, for a whole lot of reasons. A very good idea to make passport, passport cards free. So uh, one of the, you know, one of the, uh, one of the big penalties against being working poor in this country is that a lot of the working poor do not have a federal, a federal photo ID. And under the Patriot Act, the banks are, are, have all of these provisos that make them uh, investigate your ID. So, and, and they don't want to handle small accounts from poor people. All right, that was just one half. Still ahead, much more. The second part of our interview with Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Wait to hear his thoughts on OPEC, the BRIC nations, the U.S. dollar, and why he says he should be on at least one debate stage with President Biden. We're back in a moment. All right, welcome back. More now on our one-on-one interview with Democratic candidate for president, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. We asked him about American competition with the growing BRICS coalition, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And he makes his case on why Democratic primary voters should have access to a debate with him and President Biden or any other candidates, as well as sharing his thoughts on the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act was hijacked by industry, by particularly the carbon industry, that, you know, carbon capture, which is there's $173 billion in subsidies in that act for carbon capture. We need free market capitalism. And we need to end the subsidies to the carbon industry. Listen, right now, you can build a solar plant in this country. Capital costs of a solar plant are about a billion dollars a gigawatt. A coal plant is $3.6 billion a gigawatt. So, and a, a nuke plant is $14 billion a gigawatt. Yeah, but a nuke is always on. No, it isn't. There's a, there are but nuclear is always on. No, 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 no. No, they have more maintenance outages with nuclear power plants than almost any other sector. You, you do have maintenance. You'll have some water issues. I agree. But well, for the most part, but if it's 14, fusion listen, you can, you can, is the sun. Well, we don't have... 
Fusion. Well, okay. Fission, fusion. You get my. I wish we did have cold fusion, by the way. We could create limitless energy, and there are some well, yeah, encouraging. Well, There are some encouraging little, uh, you know, science programs. Yeah, but we there. don't have that. What I mean, is your view on nuclear power? Uh, my view is that I'm all for it if they ever make it safe, and if they ever make it uh, uh, economic, you can make. We can make energy by burning prime rib. But, you know, but why wouldn't we take the cheapest form of energy? energy button, right? <laughs> you know, why wouldn't we take the cheapest form of energy possible? So what do we do? What's the new energy economy then? Wind, solar, get yeah, rid of the subsidies kind of, for the carbon capture. Get rid of the subsidies. There's 5.2 trillion dollars in subsidies annually for carbon. There are small subsidies, relatively small, for wind and solar. Where would U.S. oil and gas fall in the in a Kennedy administration's because you're an environmental guy as yeah. well, plan, and also do you have a view on OPEC? Well, right now, I mean, the, the thing that we should be worried about right now is BRICS, and BRICS is going to own OPEC, and that is because we've weaponized, you know, because of our war ideology has, has driven the acceleration of BRICS, and now you've got BRICS as representing, uh, I think, 47% of the world's population and uh, and 37% of GDP and but they they now with BRICS 11 you have Russia, Saudi Arabia, yep. Venezuela which control OPEC. So 90% of the energy is going to be I you, you I think you might have read my mind since I have no notes which is that was my final <laughs> or close to final question was was going to be about China. Okay, and particularly you've got the US Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo over there. <laughs> But I want to get your views on China. But you talked about BRICS. So if our viewers aren't familiar, Brazil, Russia, India, China, plus South Africa, they're expanding. Well, now, they now they're expanding eat, right. the group dramatically. Right. It feels like kind of a huge. We talked and about and it on my it's show an last week. Alternative to the dollar as the Correct. as the world reserve currency. So what what would you, what would a Kennedy administration do to counter that growing counterweight that clearly is being run mostly by China? Well, nobody wanted to start BRICS. Nobody wanted an alternative to the U.S. dollar. This happened because of our weaponization of the U.S. dollar and weaponization of our foreign policy, unilateral weaponization, and the weaponization of our control of the of the world currency, where we were impounding people's, um, you know, their personal assets yep, yep. if the government misbehaved and do it uh, unilaterally. So we created it. We need to de-escalate our, you know, our, uh, our violence around the world, which has driven the creation of BRICS. But in, in, you know, the answer to your question about China, China does not want a war with the United States. We spend three times on our, on our military what they do. We have 800 bases abroad. They have one and a half. They're not like they want to compete with us. They want to bury us. But they want to do it on an economic playing field, and they need us. You know, they cannot survive without us. We're, we're, I'm their, not, we're their marketplace. In uh, right. We are and the, we're the am, biggest buyer right. of Chinese goods by far. Right. Walmart. So I'm not afraid of the United States competing with China head-to-head -head in countries around the world. I think that's good for us. I think we win that competition because we have freedom. What about, US, what about Nike, Apple, U.S. companies doing business there? If you were going to give advice to Tim Cook of Apple, what would it be? Well, I, giving economic advice or, you know, patriotic advice. How about doing business in China? I, I don't, I'm not somebody who thinks that we should divide the world, or live on one planet, that we should divide the world into, you know, into uh, different sectors. I think 
the shared markets are ultimately good for the world because they, they decrease the chance of war. And that ultimately is okay. the greatest threat. And I am not frightened. About, I think the U.S. policy should always be, we should, the government policy should be about, uh, about fostering, developing, nurturing the middle class in this country. And that's what U.S. policy. But I'm not, I don't think we should cut off trade with China. I think some of the things that are being done, for example, um, you know, the programs to bring uh, a semiconductor. The uh, CHIPS Act. The CHIPS Act. I, you know, I don't like the fact that we're giving subsidies to the richest con companies in the world, but I do think it's prudent to be able to make semiconductors here in the United States. And I'd like to see more of that, you know, trying to bring the industry home. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't think we should be rattling the sabers at, uh, with China. When you, when you treat somebody as an adversary, they tend to become one. And we did the same thing with China. And there are a group of people in the State Department White House who want constant pipeline of new wars to feed the military industrial two, complex. Two final, and should not be driving our foreign policy. Two final questions, Mr. Kennedy. Number one, um, this is a little bit out on crypto. Uh, should we back 10% of U.S. government debt with cryptocurrency? I mean, we're off the gold standard 50 what? years now. Okay, 10%. You mean like or a selling, number. You mean selling T-bills with... Um, that backed are, by crypto or any U.S. I, government you know obligation, I, not uh, backed by gold, but by, the, new, the digi, I guess, the digital gold. Yeah, I mean, right now, I, I like the idea of having some attachment to a base currency for at least some portion of the T-bills out there. I think it enforces discipline. In the, against you know just printing money endlessly so and that um, and that individuals and governments etc when they buy T bills can get you know my uncle did this in 1963 with silver certificates and gold certificates he yeah. tried to return on at least an option for base currency rather than fiat currency which is you know which is destroyed the middle yeah. class in this country. It's become a... I know, did not ask that question by accident, Mr. Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> Final question. And, and you know, I, I'm going to... I leave... I leave the politics to a lot of the other people and, and, and also some other issues that you may be familiar with that I think you've been asked a billion times. But I want to end on, on this note. Because I think it was yesterday or two days ago, there was an AP poll showed that 77% of Americans felt that Mr. Biden, President Biden, was, was too old to serve another term, including 69% of Democrats. Now, whatever you may think of that, the Democratic National Committee has said that there will not be a primary debate, which I understand. Historically, incumbents do not face primary challengers or debates generally. I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but make the case to the DNC for having a debate, one debate between you, any other candidate, and President Biden in front of the American people to maybe assuage some concerns. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the point, that there's a lot of misgivings now among a vast majority of both Republicans and Democrats about the president's capacity as mental And again, I want to be clear, this is not my, this yeah, is not my I, thought. I, I, this is AP poll, 69% yeah, of Democrats. Yeah, so um, I think it's important for the president to have, um, to have a debate to show that, you know, this is a rigorous job, to show that he has the vigor, that he has the mental acuity, and to put those misgivings aside with the American people, but not only a debate, to have unscripted uh, uh, conversations with voters.
and to do some retail politics. Now, now you know, if he's going to have to debate President Trump or whoever the Republican is at some point, and to you know to say that it, it you know to, that he should sit on the couch. Now it's like preparing for you know telling a prize fighter you got to prepare for this for the you know the prize fight the championship by sitting on a couch and eating Chick Fil A. You know, you, we should. They, you need to be practicing. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> you need to be practicing, and um, and you know, you need and and uh, and getting on your feet and getting on your toes and um, and making sure. That Are you, you talking can do to this. him about getting one? Is there any chance that there would be a debate? Well, we're asking him for yeah. one. Yeah. I mean, I think the American people and even Democrats uh, who don't like me particularly because they. Or because they don't, you know, because they've been misled about what I believe about certain things. Um, but uh, but I, even all, virtually all Democrats want to see a debate. Our thanks to Mr. Kennedy for joining last call. By the way, there was more to the interview. We allotted about 15 minutes, but he generously gave us more time. But we didn't have the time here. So we had to cut down some of the interview in the interest of time. We talked more about how defense spending may be stealing from the middle class, more on ideas for a national ID card to help make sure labor and union labor in particular is being paid a fair wage, as well as some of his thoughts on the Nord Stream pipeline. The entire interview, front to back, not cut, is up right now or will be soon on CBC.com slash top dash video or scan the QR code that will take you straight there. I'll also tweet it out as well. And as you can see, we did not go into some of the topics that have already been asked about 100 times, in part because we value your and his time. For reaction, let's bring in New York Times reporter Kate Kelly, also CBC contributor, covering RFK Jr. and his fundraising efforts very closely. I think you can figure out what some of those topics are, Kate, because they tend to go into his views on medicine and vaccine in particular. This is CNBC. We want to do it certainly our way. He's got a really eclectic mix of backers, does he not? Yes, and I'm glad you brought that up, Brian. I was thinking as I listened to the interview, which was really intriguing, um, there was something in there for everyone, but there was nothing in there for sort of a large group of everyone, if that makes sense. And and the fundraising results kind of bear that out as well, right? So he's got a, a large check from Abby Rockefeller, who's a, a granddaughter of, of the titans of that family, um, and runs a cannabis farm in upstate New York. You know, and he's also got... Uh, $5 million, I believe, from Andrew Mellon, another scion of American sort of entrepreneurship and wealth, who spent tens of millions of dollars to help finish building the Trump border wall in Texas. So if that's not a pretty disparate pairing, I don't know what is. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, he's an environmentalist. He clearly does not. He's not a big fan of nuclear, which I am. So we kind of went back and forth about that. He's got interesting views on on immigration, this sort of federal ID that he touched on. And again, the full interview, all of it is fully up or will be up soon on CNBC.com. Kind of you. Some people say maybe he's in the wrong or running in the wrong party. Well, I mean, I. I hear you. And I, I, let's get into that. I mean, I think he's sort of tilting at windmills or or. I should say, like, going against the grain and being an iconoclast for both parties. Now, on a couple of issues, including defense spending and uh, his sort of opposition to too much defense spending and his, like, real concerns about the war in Ukraine, as well as that sort of criticism of 
Did I hear him criticizing like big finance and their role in the housing market? I mean, on those scores, he sounds more to me like Senator J.D. Vance than he does, you know, certainly President Biden or even a mainstream Republican. Now, on the other hand, when you hear him talking about China and sort of protectionist trade policies, the problems with those and sort of broad strokes saying there are things about the CHIPS Act that he likes, that is sort of veiled agreement or praise of the yeah. Biden administration. And I, that's I very much in opposition you to know, Trump and, and folks like J.D. Vance. Yeah. And, and obviously he's got, you know, the, the voice issue spasmodic dysphobia, which is not dangerous. Uh, but it does sometimes, you know, you, you could sort of figure out what he's saying. And what he was saying was, you know, you think about a young family in, in Cleveland or whatever going to buy a house and they find out that some giant Wall Street firm has bought up the entire block. And by the way, is more than happy to rent the house back to them. But that prices have come out of control and that 55 percent of American families effectively cannot survive on one income. I mean, I don't think those should even be partisan issues. No, they're not. But but I guess what I'm getting at there, Brian, is and I, I, I my information on this is a little dated, but I looked at this in 2021 when it became kind of a hot issue uh, among politicians and on the right. You know, you had Tucker Carlson talking about it. You had J.D. Vance and others talking about it. I mean, the reality is the, the sort of, quote unquote, Wall Street, you know, BlackRock, Blackstone ownership of of these family homes is really quite small. Now, at the same time, no doubt that affordable housing is a huge issue in the country. The wealth gap has exacerbated that. The fact that in large cities where so many of the jobs are, um, we have wealthier people who drive up the price of housing. That's another part of that. You know, I'm sure you have some of the same Wall Street contacts that I do that would complain bitterly about red tape and the cost of capital and permitting in a city like New York that they find crazy and sort of anathema to actually investing in residential real estate. So I think there are a lot of factors. I'm not sure the Wall Streetization of single family homes is really the key. No, maybe not. Certainly there's and there's other issues that, you know, again, CNBC interviews. So we're going to kind of CNBC it like we do and. Uh, appreciate him sitting down with us as well. And the full interview, there's a couple more minutes, I think it was, uh, just the interest of time that is up on the website. So Kate Kelly, the New York Times, we really appreciate your views. Thank you. All right, coming up, OPEC Secretary General sending us an exclusive op-ed on oil. It just dropped. You're going to hear part of it along with reaction from Halima Croft, but you will only if you stick around. All right, welcome back to Last Call. A new op-ed from OPEC just dropping exclusively on CNBC.com. The group's secretary general writing about just how much the world needs oil and not just for driving. Now, like it or not, fossil fuels, believe it or not, still account for a majority of the world's energy consumption, despite what you hear, and it's not even close. Again, you may not believe this, but according to the Statistical Review of World Energy, one of the leading publications on this, oil coal and natural gas are just under 82% of energy use globally. Nuclear and hydro, another 10%, leaving just 8% to other sources of energy like wind, solar, and biofuels. In other words, the world has a long, long way to go in that energy transition. Now, in the op-ed, the OPEC Secretary General, Haitham Al-Ghai, said, quote, the scale of the climate change challenge is daunting. But meeting the world's rising energy demand and mitigating climate change do not have to exist in a vacuum or be at odds with each other. Strong words at an important time for America 
and the rest of the world as billions of dollars are being spent on other forms of energy. It is a hot take for sure. Many of you will disagree with it. But is it the right take? Joining us now for more is RBC Capital Markets Managing Director, CBC contributor, global traveler, and OPEC attender, Halima Croft, joining us uh, for last call. Halima, listen, it, I think first, before we get to the content of the op-ed, which is up on CNBC.com, it's rare to see OPEC, you know, and Haytham al who who took over for his successor, Mohammed Barkindo, who, who passed away, uh, kind of be on the, off- on the offense like this. Well, I think it's a message that OPEC leaders want to get out there as we head into COP28, the first time the UN Climate Conference will be held in an OPEC country, the UAE. And so I think they want to get out there with this message that they'd like the focus to be on reducing emissions as opposed to reducing investment in oil and gas. They basically say, look, if you want volatility and price spikes, you can just go ahead with defunding oil and gas. But they say the effort should be on things like CCUS methane abatement, new fuels like focusing on hydrogen, nuclear. So this is not a new message from OPEC, but they are certainly stepping it up on the road to COP28. Oh, and by the way, I think you, if you heard the interview we just did with RFK Jr., he has pretty strong negative views on carbon capture, I think, and all the subsidies. Therefore, I think OPEC, and again, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but the op-ed's up, you know, trying to say to the world, listen, it's not just about putting gasoline in your car. And, you know, when you study really oil and and natural gas, you realize, and again, you can hate it, but you don't realize all the stuff that that goes into. And I believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, as you would do politely, Halima, that oil is less than 50% used for transportation, at least cars. I think this is the point that they're trying to make about energy. And we think about things like food, for example. Think about the role of natural gas as a feedstock for fertilizer. And so what they essentially want to say is, is again, when we think about the energy transition and accelerating the energy transition, they would like the focus to be more on reducing emissions as opposed to defunding oil and gas and having a a situation of energy poverty. I mean, that has been a big message from His Royal Highness, Prince Abdelaziz bin Salman, the Saudi oil minister, very focused on trying to combat energy poverty, pointing out that there are millions of people using biomass to feed their home in the global south. So again, this is not a new OPEC message, but I think we're going to hear more of this from the producer group as we head into COP28. Halima, what do you make of oil, oil sort of quietly creeping above 80 and then hanging around above there? I mean, look at the huge inventory draw numbers that we saw out today. I mean, this is a market where we have clear indications that the physical market is tightening. We've had tremendous OPEC plus discipline. But what has been holding the market back has been this continual concern about broader macro issues, China. But when we look at the Chinese import numbers, they remain strong for August so far. Yep. There we go. Maybe China seems to be the key to all everything in terms of oil pricing. Halima Croft, the key to all of our knowledge. Halima, thank you. All right, on deck. It could be the biggest change in drug policy in decades or maybe ever. Why the Biden administration wants to treat marijuana the same as cough syrup or testosterone, and it has the pot stocks red hot. All right, welcome back. Wasn't that long ago that you could be thrown in jail for selling a dime bag of pot? Many people were, and some are probably still in prison for it. 
But now, cannabis is legal in many states, and the White House wants to take another big step. The Department of Health and Human Services recommending cannabis be taken from what's known as a Schedule 1 drug, which would include a heroin or an LSD, down to a Schedule 3 drug classification, which would treat it roughly as the same as cough syrup or certain types of aspirin. Now, that is not done yet. It's a recommendation. But even the report of it sending buyers into the cannabis stocks, look at Green Thumb Industries, surging 20%. Others weren't far behind. What exactly does this mean for the industry? Joining us now is Green Thumb Industries CEO Ben Kovler. Ben, what would that mean for the industry if this occurred? Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, it's a big deal. Today's a big deal with the potential to reschedule cannabis to a Schedule Three drug, which would essentially open up the doors. There's a lot of questions, not so many answers, but it's continued momentum. We would applaud the Biden administration for finally beginning to recognize the medical benefits of this product that help millions and millions of Americans across the country. So today's a big deal, and we're hopeful the DEA follows through and reschedules cannabis. You know, the cannabis market, obviously so much optimism there was and there still is, but, you know, the pr pricing hasn't been very good. There's, there's not a shortage of cannabis out there in the market. What would this do to the marketplace itself, Ben? Well, it begins the concept of being able to list a U.S. company like Green Thumb with a billion dollars in sales, 300 million of EBITDA on a U.S. exchange. So Americans across the country that are smoking dog walkers and smoking rhythm can actually buy the stock. Right now, that's not very feasible. It would mean banking access. It would mean social equity candidates that want to get a loan or a small business loan should be able to get a loan. There should be access to lower priced capital in a tax system that is much more normal. So it's the beginning and the continued credentialization of the industry and normalization and really beginnings of more valuation into the businesses that are doing very good. Is it? Listen, I, I know what you're going to say to this, Ben, but it, cannabis is not without its issues, right? I mean, the National Institute of Drug Abuse says there are people that are involuntarily committed because I'm told <clears throat> that the cannabis of today is much stronger than the cannabis of, say, listening to Nirvana and laughing with a bunch of friends. I mean, is there a medical rationale for this? Is there a medical rationale against this? I mean, let's let the facts speak, right? There's thousands, tens of thousands. I think it's 75,000 Americans are killed by alcohol. We have 100,000 killed by opioid overdose, and you have zero killed with cannabis. So those facts speak pretty loudly to us. This is a product that's been around for thousands of years. Now, it's not going to be without its bumps. There are lessons to be learned. There's a lot of regulation that's needed. We can't have accidental gummies that have dosages where the user is not clear what it is. That's effectively having a red cup of beer that's accidentally tequila. Nobody would do that. That makes no sense. Yeah. So we need calm, rational, common sense regulations in order to ensure safety in this industry. But this product is awesome. We encourage folks to use it. We think it's a means towards well-being and it's a safe alternative to other opioids and sleep alternatives. Just, just make sure you label it because it's like some of these alcoholic drinks these hard seltzers look like LaCroix and you got to stop your eight year old. Be like, no, 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 not that one. You know what I mean? Like, just label the stuff. Yes. Good. Ben, appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, let's go back in time. Ninety three years ago today, the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett, was born. Happy 93rd birthday, Warren Buffett, son of a congressman and businessman. He bought his flagship firm, Berkshire Hathaway, in 1965, came chair and CEO five years later. Buffett, of course, sticking to the principles of value investing from his earliest days. He buys big stakes in a couple of stocks or entire private companies and then holds them for long periods of time, if not indefinitely. It's paid off handsomely. He's got a net worth of over $120 billion, which, by the way, this is random. It's your RBI for tonight. $120 bucks is the equivalent to earning $3.5 million 
every day of his 93 years. Wow. See you tomorrow. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.